Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 16 and verses 1 to 8. Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 to 8. Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 to 8. Please then, brothers and sisters, if you would, hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. We live as dying creatures. We live as dying creatures. And we are reminded of this both daily and often. As many of you can attest to this morning, as you got up from bed, that you no longer have the same spring that you once used to. We are reminded that we are a dying people when we drop something on the floor and we go to pick it up and we have to do it a lot more slowly than we once did. We are reminded of the reality of of death and that we are creatures who will one day die when we see death around us, when we experience death with those whom we love. We come to understand the reality of death when we turn on the news and we see what's happening in in other parts of the world. Death and decay is all around us, yet for a large segment of the population, what they want to try to do is try to defy death and decay. That's why many people get all sorts of of work done to themselves so that they may appear younger. This is why people dress 20, 30 years younger than they really are. They're trying to convince themselves and convince others that they're not approaching death's door because they're too afraid to admit it. But do you see the the effect that that fear of death has on people's lives? This, This world revolves around trying to defeat death or turn back the hands of time. And yet deep down inside, they know that no matter what they do, they are helpless against death. And it terrifies them. And so what do they try to do? They try to ignore it, or they try to repel it. But no matter what they do, they will never be able to escape it, for death is certain, and death is coming to us all. And yet, brothers and sisters, 
we ought not to be overcome by the fear of death and decay. We should not be overcome by fear of death and decay. It does not have to be something that we push back into the recesses of our minds because we don't want to ever think about it. right? Death and decay is, should not be something that causes us to lie to ourselves about what we see in the world or about what we see when we look at ourselves in the mirror and see the reflection staring back at us. The answer to that fear, the remedy to such fear, is not to deny it. The remedy to that fear is not to try to defy it, but rather the remedy to that fear is to find deliverance from it. That is the remedy. To find deliverance from it. And brothers and sisters, you will only ever find deliverance from this type of fear over death and decay in Christ and Christ alone. This is as much as the author to the Hebrews tells us here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and what? And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, before Christ died, before we became believers, death reigned in our hearts. Death reigned in our hearts. But in the death of Christ, He has destroyed the one who has power over death, that is the devil. And so that now, we who believe in Christ, no longer does the fear of death reign in our hearts, but rather Christ does. This is why He came in His first advent and assumed, in his first advent and assumed to Himself human nature. It was not to, to set Himself up as an earthly king, Right? He came to die. It was not to establish an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, but rather it was to establish His spiritual throne in the hearts of believers and be our heavenly King. And yet, brothers and sisters, He could not have done that had He remained in the grave. If He had remained in the grave, He would have been no different than you and I. Because to die is to be human but to raise oneself up by their own power from the grave, that is divine. And this is what Jesus Christ proves in His resurrection. That not only is He truly man, but that He is truly God. The Son of God. Who's by His very own power, He rose from the grave and by that same power He promises to raise all who believe to newness of life with Him. So that those who trust in Him no longer have to fear being overcome with fear of death in the grave. For Christ tells us He is the, the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. We are told He's not the God of the dead, but the living. Right? Christ is the, the firstborn of the dead so that whoever believes in Him, yet He dies, shall, He shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Him shall never die. Right? This is the great promise that Believers have in Christ through His own resurrection from the grave. Right? We have this great hope of deliverance from our every enemy, even death in the grave. And we have such a great hope as this because on that first day of the week, on that Sunday when Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bring spices to anoint the body of Christ, you know what? Christ is not there. He's not there. 
And it is that tomb then that our text centers around this morning. Actually, it's not, it's who's not in the tomb that really confirms to us the prophetic word of Christ, does it not? That on the third day he will rise again? And it's who's in the tomb actually and what he says that corroborates the veracity of the resurrection. And so it's the significance of this, of this tomb that we want to look at together this morning. And we're going to do that under three points. And the three points are these. First, the open tomb. The open tomb. Second, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. And third, we want to look at the benefits of the open and empty tomb. So you have the open tomb, the empty tomb, and the benefits of the open and empty tomb. So point number one, the open tomb. Here in verse one, we're told that the Sabbath has passed. So now these three women are able uh, to go to the, the grave of, of Christ and they, and they waste no time. And they go in order that they might anoint the body of Christ with spices, we're told. And the reason they do this um, is because they, they and the, well, the reason I should say that they try to get there as soon as we're told in verse 2 that the sun is risen is because they understand that the body under such heat and in that tomb is going to start to, to decompose and decay. And so this is why the, the moment that they're able to, they make their way to the tomb in order that they might anoint his body with these spices before it starts into great decomposition and decay so that they can still handle the body. Now, as these three women approach in verse 3, we're told that, that on their way there, they recall that there was this large stone, though, that was placed there. And so they ask one another, right, who is going to roll away this stone for us that we might be able to enter the tomb? Now, the stone would have fit nice, tightly, and snugly uh, in, the, in the place there, as we had pointed out last week, so that no critters could get inside and could snack upon the body. Likewise, the the, 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 that stone that was in front of the tomb, we are told here it was a large stone. And so these three women more than likely wouldn't have been able to even remove that stone themselves. But to their surprise, we're told in verse 4 that as they walk, they, they see that the stone has already been moved. And so you can just imagine the, the fear and the trepidation that they have as they, as they begin to make their way to, towards the tomb and as they begin to, to peek their heads inside. But in verse 5, we're told that entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now these last couple weeks, I've pointed out to you the, the great loyalty that these women have, have shown to Christ our Lord. During His most troubling hours, when the, when the men fled, these women stayed. These were the women who were at the foot of the cross as Christ expelled His last breath. These were the women who stood by and watched Joseph of Arimathea put Him in the tomb. And these are the women who are the first to be at His grave. And so we see their great love and devotion for Christ. We must see that. But what we need to likewise see today from our text is not only do they exercise great love and devotion, but here they exercised a great lack of faith as well. They exercised a great lack of faith as well. And we see this because as they approach the grave, they come to anoint the dead body of Christ. 
when instead they should have been approaching the grave looking to anoint the living body of Christ. And on three occasions in Mark's Gospel, we're told that Jesus tells the apostles that He must suffer and die and on the third day be raised. Right In John's Gospel, chapter 2, He says to, to, to a multitude at the temple after He cleansed it, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And John says He's speaking figuratively about His body. In John 11, if you remember, as Martha comes up to him and weeps over the death of Lazarus, what does Jesus tell her? I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus taught the apostles. He taught his followers. He taught the disciples on multiple occasions about his resurrection so that they should have believed. But all of them failed to piece together these prior statements so that the women now come to the grave anticipating not the risen Christ, but they come resigned to the fact that they are going to see a dead Christ. And so, as a result, they are alarmed by what they find. They find a tomb opened. They find Jesus missing. And they find a young man dressed in robes sitting inside. Yet, if they had come believing, there would have been no need for fear. There would have been no reason for doubt. There would have been no reason for them to be alarmed. Ultimately, their fears we need to see were unnecessary if they had just held fast to the words of Christ. But what I want us to see is what these women are guilty of, so many of us are guilty of as well. How many of us are daily living and being overcome with with fear and worry and anxiety over situations that we have no control over and that we should not be overcome with fear about? How many of us are thinking, you know, what am I going to do in this situation or that? Right? Why has God placed me here or there? When if you only trusted in the words of Christ, you would not be overcome with fear and anxiety and worry. Right? We need to see that it is not Christ that puts these inside of us, but rather it is we who do it. It is our sin. And we need to see, in fact, Christ died so that we may overcome fear and worry and anxiety. Christ desires that we be strong in the Lord, looking to Him in and through His Word. This is what the, David says in Psalm 34, verse 4. Right? Understanding that in looking to Christ, that is where you will find solace from your fear. David says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. He sought the Lord. He answered Him, and He delivered Him from all His fears. See, brothers and sisters, that Christ was not raised from the grave so that you would be put back under bondage to fear. But rather, He was raised from the grave that you might have a, a spirit of life and freedom in Christ. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And how does He do this? He does it by His glorious power. That same glorious power that moved that giant stone away from the grave that day. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, he actually tells us that it's God who, who brings forth this earthquake at this very moment. And the angel of the Lord comes down and it's He who, who moves the stone. Right? The stone was moved this way for a purpose. 
It was moved this way for a purpose so that these women, as they approached the grave, would see that this is an event orchestrated not by man, but by the divine power of God. The stone was moved in such a way so that the women could look inside and see that Jesus is risen and believe. And this removal of the stone by the power of God so that they may see that Christ is risen and believe ought to draw our minds to something, shouldn't it? What is this text communicating? As I just said those words, right? What is, it, what is this a picture of that, that God is showing us here in our text? Right? It is a picture of what God does to the hearts of the saved, of His elect. He removes your stony heart by His divine power so that you may see the risen Christ and believe. Which what? does not come through human exertion, but through divine power. Also in, in our text today, we ought to see a, a picture of that open tomb, right? symbolizing now the, the openness of the Gospel message. The open tomb now symbolizes the openness of the Gospel message. Remember, right after this, Jesus is going to meet the disciples and, and what is it that He's going to tell them to do? Go disciple the nations. The open tomb is a symbol of the openness of the gospel message. No more was it to just go to the Jews, but it was to go forth to the ends of the earth, to the entire world. This is why Paul is put on trial, is it not? For preaching the resurrection of the dead based upon the resurrection of Christ. As he stands before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he says, I'm before you today for saying that Christ must suffer And that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so do you see, brothers and sisters, how how important the the open tomb is? How it symbolizes the, the openness of the Gospel message. How it is a great demonstration of how God saves the sinner by removing the heart of stone, causing us to see and believe the risen Christ. This message is what the apostles then were were willing to die for. And why? What changed? It was because they beheld the divine power of God as they seen and looked upon the risen Christ. That's what caused these cowering men to come out and boldly proclaim the word, no longer concerned about what would happen to them, seeing how necessary it is for the whole world to hear this message. This leads us then to our second point this morning, which is the empty tomb. We've seen the importance of the open tomb. Now let us see the importance of the empty tomb. Look with me please at verse 5 and 6. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. Now, the one who's sitting in the tomb is described to us as a young man in a white robe. Now, in Matthew and Luke, they come right out and they tell us who it is. They they tell us this is an angel. Now, Mark doesn't come out and explicitly say it, but we can... We can decipher that easily from the text. Right? We just have to ask ourselves, is white robe, what is white symbolized oftentimes in the Bible? Or what's it associated with in the Bible? 
heavenly beings. Right? White is associated with heavenly beings. This is why in John's vision in Revelation chapter 1, he sees the Son of Man with, with white hair. This is why on the Mount of Transfiguration we're told that Jesus' clothes turn intensely white. And so we see that Mark is identifying this man as a, as a heavenly being by describing him wearing a white robe. But we also are not to be troubled by the fact that he is described as a young man. If you remember Genesis chapter 19, two angels come down and visit Lot in Sodom. And he invites them into their home. And when the men of the city come to Lot's house and bang on the door and ask for them to come out, what do they say? They don't say, bring those two angels out of your house so that we can have them. They say, bring those two men out of the house. And so we need to see, oftentimes, in the Scriptures, angels appear to man in human form. And so it is this angel that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome encounter as they enter the empty tomb. And what is their response, we're told? They're alarmed. They're alarmed. But what does the angel then say to them? He says, be not alarmed, for he is risen. I want us to see that exceeding joy is the only proper response upon hearing the good news of the resurrection of Christ. Exceeding joy is the only proper response of the empty tomb. Rejoice that Christ has risen as His being risen from the grave confirms to us that He has defeated our every enemy. That is the comfort now we as all believers share, that Christ has defeated those spiritual enemies that we were subject to so that we do not have to be subject to them any longer. We're no longer subject to or 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 have these things no longer have dominion over us, right? The devil, the world, sin, death, none of those things. And it was the reality of Christ's victory that these women witness as they stand and they behold this empty tomb. They see with their very eyes the, the thing that Peter declares in the sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, which was this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right? The, the Father would not let His Holy One see corruption. And we ought to rejoice because of that. And not just selfishly rejoice because of what it means for us, but we ought to rejoice even more so because of what it means for Christ. At the resurrection, brothers and sisters, Christ receives that glory that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world. At the resurrection, Jesus receives a name that is above all names. At the resurrection, Jesus has all authority to exercise His dominion and His lordship over all of His creation as mediator. At His resurrection, Christ has now taken the seat at the right hand of God. At the resurrection, Jesus no longer lives in the weakness of His flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoice that He rose that Sunday morning. Rejoice that He rose as King. Because as King, He had to conquer His enemies. And He did as He rose from the dead. Rejoice that He arose that first day of the week as our priest 
For now, He has taken a seat at the right hand of God and lives to make intercession for us. Rejoice that He has arisen as our great prophet as He teaches us His Word and confirms its truthfulness to us every day. The resurrection of Christ, the the empty tomb is, is fundamental. It's foundational for all of Christianity. In fact, if you do not have the resurrection, you do not have the faith. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. But what's the good news? Just a couple of verses later. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. And it is this resurrection then that belongs to the earliest confession of the faith. We see this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It's the gospel message. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, what I want us also to see is how significant it is that Christ reveals this first to these three women. See, women during this time have no standing in society as witnesses. And so if you want someone to believe a story of yours, this is not the way you go about doing it. But God chooses purposefully to reveal it to these women so that it is His power, His wisdom, His sovereignty that is put on display so that He receives the glory in He alone through bringing sons and daughters to faith through the message of the empty tomb. Right? It pleased God through the folly of what men preach to save those who believe. And if you have been brought to faith by the power of God through the message of what Christ has done on this resurrection Sunday, what ought to be your reply? What ought to be your reply? I think Paul tells us what it ought to be. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 saying this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seeking, brothers and sisters, implies a desiring for, does it not? A wanting something that is, of, that is precious to you. Right? We, we don't seek things that we don't find valuable to us. Now, unfortunately, for many Christians throughout the world, and perhaps for many of you even here today, you demonstrate through your daily lives that you hold a lot of other things more valuable than Christ. By choosing work, TV, recreation, your children's activities, hobbies, politics, over seeking out Christ. What do you spend your downtime doing? That is what you value. That is what you value. What do you spend your time thinking about? That is what you value. What do you spend your time surfing the internet looking for? That is what you value. But what does Paul say? Paul tells us that if you have risen with Christ, that our minds ought to be heavenly orientated. That ought to be what we value most in this world. Although we live here on earth, we ought to be keeping our minds in heaven. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. It is a question that we all have to to answer for ourselves. And that is, do you live as if Christ is risen and you have risen with Christ? 
Or do you continue to live your life as if Christ's dead body is still in that grave? If you say that you live as if Christ is risen, then brothers and sisters, we must be putting to death that which is earthly in us. We must be putting on that which is heavenly. We must be looking towards the, uh, God's Word to, so that it might dwell in us richly. So that we might walk in newness of life as people whose citizenship is not here on earth but in heaven. As we are those who have been delivered from the wrath to come. This then leads us to our third and our final point this morning which is the benefits of the open and empty tomb. Please look with me at verses 7 and 8. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want us to first look here and see who is this divine message directed toward? The angel of the Lord tells Mary to go tell the disciples, and especially Peter, that he is going before them to Galilee. See, brothers and sisters here, the the love, the the kindness, the tender-heartedness of our Savior towards sinners, that He does not hold these men's sin against them. If you remember from Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus Tells them this is going to happen. He says to the apostles, you are going to deny me. You are going to flee. He tells Peter, you will deny me three times. But then he says, after I have risen, I will go before you to Galilee. And so this message that the angel gives to Mary to tell the apostles is not one that is given to cause them shame and embarrassment, but it is one that is given so that they might see the love of God in Christ Jesus towards them and they might find hope and comfort in it. The angel's message to the disciples, and in particular to Peter, who is hurting right now, is one of fulfillment. He says, go to Galilee. There I will meet you. He, he demonstrates to them. He comforts them by His Word, saying, I will fulfill all of my promises to you. And he shows his, his pardoning mercy and love towards them. And why is it? It's not because they were deserving of it. But He shows them His pardoning mercy and love because this is why He came, suffered, died, and rose again. Right? Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you are a believer here today, this is a great benefit that you have in Christ. Your sin has been forgiven. It has been blotted out. It is remembered no more. And now you have the imputed righteousness of Christ that has been credited to your account. So that when God deals with you, He no longer deals with you in anger and wrath, but in love. You have to see this is a great benefit that we receive through Christ's resurrection. Another benefit of, of Christ's resurrection is our own resurrection. And this resurrection really is twofold. The first resurrection is when the believer is regenerated and passes from death to life, is raised to newness of life. This is what John says in John chapter 5, verse 24, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
You have to have the first resurrection if you ever hope to have the second. There has to be a time when God takes the dead sinner and breathes new life into him. This is what John talks about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. This is what the believer, this is what the apostles believe for themselves. This is why we could see in Acts of the Apostles that they go from fearing suffering and death to rejoicing when they are imprisoned and beaten. This is why we see that they go from being scared, cowards, and hiding to standing before kings and proclaiming the risen Christ. It is because they have experienced that first resurrection and have come to know it much better through seeing the risen Christ. But this ultimately is not the only resurrection that Christ came to secure. He came to secure the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have to take upon ourselves immortality. We need to become imperishable. These mortal, dying, decaying bodies. And only then can we hope to experience utopian felicity with Christ forever in paradise. Christ won this benefit for us through His resurrection. You see, Adam lost it because of sin. But what Adam lost, Christ gained. Paradise lost in Adam. Paradise gained in Christ. The fellowship that was lost in the garden, Christ died and rose again to secure for us so that one day we might dwell eternally with God in sweet fellowship with Him. Never to be cast out again. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what we have been promised. We're in heaven. You never again are going to be spiritually hungry or thirsty for we all will dwell with Christ and each and every one of you will have your fill of Him forever. That is the benefit we have in the resurrection of Christ. This is why there is no need for us to fear death anymore. This isn't paradise for the believer. This is why the ungodly fear death and decay. Because this is their paradise. But for the believer, we ought to rejoice as we march towards death, knowing that the last day on earth will be the believer's best. And when you are received up into glory, all of your fears will pass away. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. Nor will there be any death. And so the question is, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And do you believe that by that same power He he rose from the grave, that He likewise will raise you up on that last day? If so, then just as trembling and amazement seized these women as they ran away afraid, as we're told in verse 8, so it ought to seize us as well this day. We ought to stand in awe and amazed and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We ought to stand in awe and amazed that the Son came, suffered and died and rose so that we might be fit for fellowship with Him for all of eternity. We ought to be seized where you, where you sit today if you just contemplate for one second the divine power of God displayed in the resurrection of Christ. You ought to be seized in the very place you sit right now when you think about the divine power displayed in your own salvation. 
When you get a glimpse of God's glory, you cannot help but tremble in astonishment at it. Right? This is the way that the saints ought to respond. Right? When Moses beheld the glory of God, he was seized by it and astonished at it. When Peter sees and beholds the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is seized where he's at. We're told he trembled so much he didn't even know what to say or do. And so it ought to teach every single one of us that when we gather in the dwelling place of God each Lord's Day, that we ought to come trembling before Him. We ought to come in astonishment, seized by the glory of God knowing that we are entering into the presence of an all-holy, all-powerful, all-perfect Savior. And yet, in all of that astonishment, we ought to be filled likewise with joy. We ought to be filled with joy as sin is being crushed under the foot of Christ, as, as the head of the serpent is, Christ is crushed by our Savior. Right? We ought to be filled with joy, knowing that our only comfort in life and death is knowing that we are Christ's. And Christ is ours. And that one day we are going to see Him face to face knowing that it is His resurrection that has secured and ensured this great benefit for all who love the Lord and believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we are astonished by Your grace. We are astonished by Your work of redemption. We stand seized as we behold the glory of God in the Gospel message. We pray, Father, that You would help us to think about this day, the the great benefits that we have received in Christ because He did not remain in the grave. And we ask, Lord, this day that You would use this message, that You would use this text to help all of those who may hear it, who are here today or may hear it another day, who are struggling with with death and with hopelessness, Lord, that You might use this message to teach them about Your grace in Christ and how all those who believe do not have to be overcome by fear of death in the grave, but they can have a hope a hope of everlasting life with Christ their Savior forever if they only trust and believe. Lord, we pray that You would apply these truths to our hearts this day so that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.